Hello, and welcome to Tiny Insect, episode 1.4, Rise of the Qing. By the mid-1630s, China's ruling Ming Dynasty was in deep trouble. The price of silver was rising more and more every year, wrecking havoc on the Ming economy as we discussed last episode. Ming administrators attempted to reform the court bureaucracy and remove the rot of corruption that had taken hold during the reign of the Wanli Emperor, but it was not enough. Harvests were bad one year, and then worse a few years later. The young population had an increasing trouble finding opportunity. Educated, degree-holding, aspiring gentry went without work. There wasn't enough farmland for new families to start their lives. It was a time of crisis. Southwest of Beijing, in Shangxi province, a mutinous soldier named Li Zicheng had had enough. Li had joined a local military unit a few years previous, but after receiving neither pay nor adequate supplies, he joined in a mutiny and became one of its leaders. The mutinous soldiers, however, were quickly defeated and captured, but the main commander felt that he couldn't afford to let even mutinous soldiers go to waste in times like this and dispatched Li and his men to guard a northern border outpost. Li complied, only to be betrayed by a different local magistrate, who executed dozens of his comrades. So, Li rebelled again. This time, he joined forces with several other large groups of quote-unquote bandits, and over the next several years, they took control over vast swaths of the rich Yellow River Valley. By 1640, Li and another powerful rebel commander, Zhang Xiangzhong had both declared new kingdoms independent of the Ming. In 1644, Li Zicheng led an army of several hundred thousand troops to Beijing and, after a short siege, captured the city. The Ming emperor, Chongzhen, hung himself to avoid capture. So what made the Ming so desperate that they felt they had to dispatch Li and his mutinous comrades to the northern frontier? It was the same boogeyman that had kept many a Chinese emperor up at night for 2,000 years, northern barbarians. Throughout the early decades of the 17th century, the Manchu tribes to the north, under their leaders Narachi and his son Hong Taiji, had become increasingly aggressive and expansive in their ambitions. They had conquered Inner Mongolia, subjugated Korea, and even conquered some portions of territory in northeast China that had been directly administered by the Ming. Infighting in the Ming court only intensified in the face of these difficulties. One of the Ming's most talented commanders was brought up on trumped-up charges of colluding with the enemy and executed. Seeing that they could be condemned on false charges of treason at any time, other Ming generals began to move their units north and defect to the Manchu. From the outset of their fighting with the Ming, the Manchus incorporated millions of Chinese into their regime both military and bureaucratic. Almost immediately after Li Zicheng's conquest of Beijing, Manchu armies crossed the border, passed the Great Wall, and descended on the capital. They drove Li and his army from the capital they had only captured a few months before. Once the Manchu were in control of Beijing, they declared a new Chinese dynasty, the Qing. The year was 1644. The Qing would be China's last imperial dynasty. Within a year, the Qing crushed the remainder of Li's state. Li himself died in 1645. Zheng Xiangzhang, 
The other major leader, who had rebelled against the Ming, died two years later. But the fighting was far from over. There were several other claimants to the Ming throne, as well as powerful factions in China that resisted the Manchus. It took 17 years for the Qing armies to consolidate their control over China, incorporating willing Chinese leaders into their government, and killing those who refused to submit. On top of all this, and the troubles that had plagued China before the Manchu invasion, an epidemic, probably bubonic plague, swept across the country. Disease often follows war and famine, as systems of public health break down, available nutrition shrinks, and roving armies spread pathogens across the land. The decades of war, disease, and famine in the mid-17th century devastated the Chinese population. Somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 to 30 million people died. Complex irrigation systems were destroyed. In their battle against Ming holdouts on the island of Taiwan, the Qing forced all of the inhabitants living within 20 miles of the coast of South and Southeast China to move inland. They burned all the buildings and supplies in that 20-mile strip, and burned every ship they could get a hold of in a scorched-earth campaign against the pirate rebels. The Qing were victorious against the Ming holdouts on Taiwan, but very few of the original coastal inhabitants moved back. When they thought it was necessary, the Qing were not afraid to make a desert and call it peace. The Qing stitched together a vast, multi-ethnic empire. Their homeland, Mongolia, Tibet, and of course, Ming China, itself a patchwork of provinces and regions with their own distinct identities, cultures, and languages. Popular Chinese historiography tends to lump all Chinese people together as an ever-contiguous, unchanging polity thousands of years old. In no small part, because of efforts on the part of dynasties like the Ming to spread that belief and make it true. While politically united at the highest level, Qing China as a whole had about as much in common linguistically, socially, and economically as the states of Christian Europe in 1650, from the Puritan colony in New England, Tapsburg, Spain, Lutheran German principalities, and the Russian Empire. Securing social and political control of China took the Manchu decades of deliberate, conscious effort. The Manchu forced their subjects to break with the past in visible ways. Within a year of capturing Beijing and declaring their dynasty, they mandated that all Chinese men wear a queue. Only very specific people, like Buddhist monks, were exempt. A queue is a hairstyle where a man shaves the front portion of his head and grows the hair on top and back of the head out and wears it in a long braid. Citizens of the empire were later required to also adopt the preferred clothing styles of the Manchu. The Qing took their required hairstyles and clothing really seriously. Men who were found without the approved hairstyle could be severely punished. Decapitation was not unheard of. After bitter fighting against opposition forces and pushing into Guangzhou in 1650, the Qing found that men of the city had refused to shave their heads in the proper style. The Manchu commanders ordered a general massacre. 700,000 were slaughtered in the streets, and tens of thousands more drowned while taking shelter in a sewer after a rainstorm. The Qing leaders took steps to ensure that they would both remain and become a separate people. The preeminent Manchu scholar Pamela Crosley writes that, quote, The truth is that Manchu history is a classic illustration 
of the fundamentally unviability of the notion that quote-unquote race is or ever can be a real thing in itself. The reality for Manchus lay in the political, cultural, and psychological power that quote-unquote race as a construct came to assume, end quote. The Qing worked tirelessly to maintain their own culture and lineages, drawing arbitrary lines to ensure that they would remain an elite caste separated from the millions of native Chinese they incorporated into their military and imperial bureaucracy. They did not allow Manchu women to adopt the practice of footbinding, which created a barrier to intermarriage with prosperous Chinese men who preferred their women deformed. For most of the dynasty, being a Manchu soldier was a hereditary position, and they weren't allowed to pursue any other line of work, and were thus beholden to the state. The Manchus also confiscated hundreds of thousands of acres of prime farmland in northern China and distributed it to their soldiers and officers. The residents of entire sections of Chinese cities were forcibly relocated in order to make room for gated garrisons and enclaves where only Manchu could live. Crosley notes that despite all of these efforts, the distinctions between Manchu and Chinese weren't really fully shaped until more than two centuries after the conquest, during the Taiping Chinese Civil War. In the course of the war, she writes that, quote, many marginal bannermen were permanently alienated from the communities in which they lived, while a conscious choice of loyalty or apostasy was forced on those who remained. All those readily identified as bannermen were subjected to the clearest pronouncements of racial differentiation issued from Chinese nativists as well as both threatened and actual extermination at the latter's hands. End quote. With the ascension of the Kangxi Emperor in 1661, the Qing entered a period of tremendous dynastic stability. For nearly 140 years, just three men led China through a period of expansion and change. Kangxi Emperor, his son, the Yongzheng Emperor, and grandson, the Chenglong Emperor. While I could write several episodes on the Kangxi Emperor alone, I want to focus on his policies and military campaigns that would have the longest lasting impact. Early in his rule, the Kangxi Emperor consolidated the conquests of his Manchu forebears. The Ming system of examinations was revitalized and expanded to funnel talented young men into government service. The exam system also created and maintained a ruling elite personally loyal to the Qing Emperor to implement his rule across the empire. In the late 1600s, the Kangxi Emperor ordered several military campaigns west into the Gobi Desert and beyond. These campaigns pushed Qing control into Central Asia. Much of this territory, now known as Xinjiang province, wouldn't be fully secured until the reign of Kangxi's grandson. Today, it's in Xinjiang province where the Chinese state is working to coerce its native residents, such as the Uyghurs, into abandoning their Muslim faith and native languages and to adopt the Han Chinese culture. These efforts have included demolishing mosques and sending more than a million people into quote-unquote re-education camps. Toward the end of his reign, in 1720, the Kangxi Emperor also launched an invasion of Tibet, another territory still ruled by China today, and installed his own puppet Dalai Lama. The Kangxi Emperor kept many European advisors and artisans in his service. As a child, 
he was tutored in math and astronomy by a German priest. As emperor, a Belgian man directed his department of astronomy and, under the pain of expulsion from the empire, was put in charge of manufacturing cannon for the emperor's military. In 1712, Kangxi abolished the poll tax, that is, a tax based on population, and also declared that the land taxes would never increase again. Land taxes were fixed to the amount and rated quality of the land and had no relationship to how many people lived there. These twin policy changes haunted his successors for the next two centuries. In the century plus after Kangxi's reign, the population of the empire exploded. More on that in a little bit. The value of land increased. Demands for government services such as courts, police, infrastructure, public works, and social services all increased as well. But the size of the government and the services that it was able to provide were relatively fixed because the tax base was fixed. Kangxi's successors felt tied to this policy through their feelings of filial piety and political pressure from landowners. We'll be revisiting this tax change and how important it was in future episodes. Kangxi's 11th son, the Yongzheng Emperor, inherited the throne from his father in 1722. Kangxi selected his 11th son to succeed him, not because he was in love with Yongzheng and thought he would make a great emperor, but because he wanted Yongzheng's young son, the future Qianlong Emperor, to become emperor one day. Thanks, Dad. Already in his mid-40s by the time he ascended to the throne, Yongzheng ruled for just 12 years, a relatively paltry sum compared to his father and son. But he made the most of it. The Yongzheng Emperor enacted policies to weaken the power of local elites and corrupt imperial officials that enabled them. Throughout China, but especially in the provinces of the wealthy lower Yangtze River, local elites had gotten really good at paying off local officials to skip on their taxes. Yongzheng worked to end this corruption with some success. The Qianlong Emperor succeeded his father to the throne in 1735 as an energetic 24-year-old. Early in his reign, he pushed to expand the borders of his empire beyond what his grandfather had achieved. He sent armies again into Tibet to the southwest and Vietnam to the south. He also launched new campaigns to exert control over the western territories his grandfather's armies had once invaded decades before. One campaign in Xianjiang was particularly horrible. From 1755 to 1757, the Qing set out to exterminate a people known as the Zhuangar, a Buddhist people originally from Mongolia. Nearly the entire population, more than half a million people, were killed through a combination of warfare, disease, and starvation in what today we'd recognize as a genocide. When he wasn't ordering the death of thousands, Qianlong ordered the compilation of Chinese works known as the Four Treasures, four being classics, histories, philosophy, and miscellaneous literary works. In the end, the collection, which took over a decade to finish, totaled 3,450 completed works and 6,750 commentaries, totaling 36,000 manuscript volumes, large enough to fill a room. If this sounds crazy, it kind of is. But consider that in the mid-18th century, it's estimated that there were more book titles in China than in the rest of the world combined. Even if you compiled just the best of the best, that was still a lot. Under Qinlong, the Qing state reached a state of maturity that, 
Although it would change by the time Hon Chi Kwan declared his heavenly kingdom in 1851, it wouldn't change that much. So, what did the Qing state actually look like? Who ran it? And how did it operate? The Qing embraced a particular form of Confucian ideology known today as Neo-Confucianism. In this podcast, when I talk about quote-unquote Confucianism, I'm pretty much always talking about Neo-Confucianism, as it was the form embraced by both the Ming and Qing dynasties. The Neo-Confucians didn't consider themselves Neo-anything. They just thought what they believed was Confucianism. We call it Neo-Confucianism today to distinguish it from the earlier forms. Neo-Confucianism stressed the importance of three relationships, the subject and ministers to the ruler, the child to the father, and the wife to the husband. They believed that harmony in society depended on these three relationships, and that the subservient parties, that is the subjects and ministers, the children and the wives, owed an absolute obedience to their respective rulers, fathers, and husbands. Patriarchy and hierarchy were thus cornerstones of Qing ideology, from the smallest families to the largest states. It was a universal principle. The emperor sat at the top of the Qing. Emperors were all-powerful within the state, although Confucian ethics dictated that they rule responsibly and within the established law and not as tyrants. The emperor was surrounded by numerous advisors and court officials, as well as family members, concubines, and his many children. The Qing did not practice primogeniture, with rule automatically passing to the firstborn son. While this was different than most monarchies in Europe at the time, it was the same as the previous Chinese dynasties. Qianlong was the fourth son of Yongzheng, who himself was the eleventh son of Kangxi, for example. Instead of reinventing the wheel, the Qing maintained the structures of Ming imperial bureaucracy. There were six ministries and a grand council. Each was composed equally of Manchu and Chinese members. Confucian gentry and degree holders, the elites of Ming society, were actively courted after 1644 and integrated into the fold to help the Qing enforce their rule across China. The system of examinations for picking government officials based on their knowledge of the Confucian classics, which I'll discuss more in a later episode, was maintained and expanded. The Confucian gentry thus became pillars of the Qing state. The Qing Empire was divided into 18 different provinces, with the capital at Beijing. There were also several other territories that had a special status, such as Tibet and Mongolia. Each province was kind of like a really large U.S. state, like a California or a Texas. Unlike U.S. states, these were simply administrative units and did not have their own sovereignty. There was no federalism written into the system. Although there was often de facto federalism as governors implemented policies in different ways and local elites held a great deal of power. The boundaries of provinces were not set in stone and they were sometimes reconfigured as the emperor and his advisors deemed necessary. Each province was assigned a governor general to administer the territory. The person put in charge of each province was a governor and a general. This is a really important point I want to emphasize because it's very different from how many modern governments work. The magistrates controlled what we think of as both the civilian part of the government, building roads and collecting taxes and administering justice, but they also controlled the police and the military. Certain decisions, 
such as death penalties, could be appealed all the way to the emperor himself. The governor generals were supposed to implement the emperor's will and served at his pleasure. But practically speaking, the governor generals were the law of their province. They resided in the provincial capital and spent much of their time coordinating the activities of other officials and provincial magistrates, such as superintendents of tax collection, the judiciary, and education examinations. The court in Beijing took several steps to prevent individual governor generals from gaining too much power. First, they were never put in charge of their home province. This way, the governor general couldn't favor their own family lineage or take advantage of other personal connections they had. Second, they were rotated pretty frequently, sometimes to other provinces and sometimes to positions in Beijing. This prevented any one governor general from cultivating his own base of power. In this way, the magistrates could exercise power over local elites without becoming too close to them. On the downside, it also made it much more difficult for governors to pursue any substantial reforms that took a long time to stick. Each province was divided further into counties, with an average of 80 counties per province. Each county had its own county capital, which was supposed to be walled off and capable of withstanding a siege, although that capacity varied widely from county to county. Each county was led by a county magistrate. These county magistrates were the quote-unquote parental official for the county, mirroring the Confucian ideals of family authority and how larger society should mirror that structure. Like the governor generals, a county magistrate was never supposed to serve in their home county. Magistrates moved around from county to county every three years to prevent them from becoming too entrenched in a specific locality and beholden more to local elites than to the emperor. But again, this made it hard for them to address any major issues or enact any major changes on their own initiative. If local elites found themselves under a magistrate who they couldn't bribe or bend to their will, they knew that they could just wait a few years and try again with the next one. Like the governor general for the province, the powers of the county magistrate were vast. He was, all in one, the sheriff and the director of police, judge and prosecutor in criminal trials and civil disputes, and the chief tax collector. He directed infrastructure projects like the building and maintenance of roads and waterworks. He performed imperial rituals and managed a staff of various assistants in all of these arenas. If there was a group of bandits harassing travelers or raiding villages, it was up to the county magistrate to lead the local militia or hire mercenaries to hunt them down and put a stop to it. If things got out of control, Beijing might send a commissioner with a, an imperial army to assist them, but that was supposed to be a last resort, and was really only a mark of failure for the county official. All county magistrates and other members of the civil service were required to pass a civil service exam. These men formed the professional class of secretaries, clerks, and administrators that worked for other magistrates. But by the early 19th century, there were many, many more degree holders than there were positions as county magistrates or as their helpers. If you didn't earn a degree, and Han Shi Kwan couldn't, you were locked out of a government job and had to take a job as a tutor, school teacher, or whatever else you could get. Jobs that didn't pay well and lacked prestige. We'll talk about this more in a future episode, but even if you did earn a degree, you often had to wait years for a position to open up. Administering Qing China was a giant task. 
put this in perspective, by the early 1800s, the Qing Empire had a significantly greater population than the United States in the year 2020, spread out over a larger territory. There was no modern communication technology or even telegraphs. So, to summarize, the Qing Dynasty employed a large, hierarchical bureaucracy to run its empire. This bureaucracy was staffed by men with a classical Confucian education, which we'll learn more about when we follow Hong Shi Quan through his education in a future episode. Although ultimate power was concentrated in the emperor, the practice of power in day-to-day life was quite diffuse and depended in large part on local actors. And, as we'll see time and time again, just because the emperor declares a new policy didn't make it manifest on the ground. His own bureaucrats at all levels made a habit of ignoring orders and lying in their reports to Beijing. Still, for much of his existence, probably into the 19th century, Qing China had the world's most advanced state bureaucracy. Next, I want to turn to look at some of the big features of Chinese society under Qing government. First, Qing China was incredibly, almost unbelievably diverse. I haven't been able to find any firm estimates to quantify this exactly, but today, after centuries of cultural hegemony and homogenization, the People's Republic of China recognizes 56 different ethnic groups speaking many different languages and dialects. The true count in the 19th century was probably much, much higher. And there was lots of diversity even within those language groups and ethnic groups. Chinese society in the 18th and 19th centuries was defined by explosive population growth, driven by the introduction and spread of crops from the Western Hemisphere, improvements in the cultivation of rice, and the geographic expansion of the empire. By 1800, the Qing Empire had doubled in geographic size and almost doubled in population from the height of the Ming Empire. In total, the Qing controlled a territory of 11.5 million square kilometers. By contrast, the modern PRC, which is one of the largest countries in the world, has about 9.6 million square kilometers, which is about the same size as the United States. So Qing China was about a Mexico or two Bolivias or four Spains larger than the modern Chinese state. China's population grew steadily throughout the Ming Dynasty, but tumbled during the Ming to Qing transition from decades of war, famine, and disease. By 1750, the population had rebounded to its height during the Ming, and then it just kept on going. In the 40 years between 1750 and 1790, China's population nearly doubled, growing from around 180 million to 300 million. By 1850, it had ballooned to somewhere between 400 and 450 million, much, much larger than it had been just a century before. The adoption of crops from the Western Hemisphere by farmers in Europe, Asia, and Africa provided the spark for what historian Suchata Mazumbar calls a, quote, second agricultural revolution. China wasn't alone in experiencing a population boom during the 18th century. European population growth followed a similar trajectory, though it started at a much lower level than the population of China. The population of Europe increased from around 80 million in 1700 to perhaps 140 million by 1800 for the same reasons Chinese population boomed, the introduction of new crops and advances in farming practices. Though most of these new crops could be found in China by the end of the Ming Dynasty, it was during the Qing 
when they began to significantly contribute to China's food supply. Sweet potatoes, maize, peanuts, and white potatoes became staples. Tomatoes, peppers, squash, and tobacco were also widely adopted and grown. By contrast, the Indian subcontinent was much slower to adopt crops from the Western Hemisphere, and its population was thus much slower to grow during this same period. It grew from about 130 million in 1600 to just 190 million in 1800. It's not even close to the growth rates in China or Europe. The impact of these new crops on European and Chinese societies weren't exactly the same. Crops from the Americas had a dramatic impact in Europe because the potato and maize allowed European wheat and barley farmers to boost their calories per acre much more than Chinese rice farmers because rice cultivation was already incredibly productive. I'm not 100% sure how it translates to the 18th century, but modern wheat farms yield about 4 million calories an acre. Rice yields three times as much. Potatoes and maize yield nearly four times more than wheat. In China, these new crops allowed Chinese farmers to cultivate land that wasn't previously usable for growing the old crops like rice and even wheat. Sweet potatoes, maize, and peanuts all grow well on hilly terrain or in poor or sandy soil. They do not require the type of alluvial plains in which rice flourishes. Cultivating these crops in otherwise marginal areas became a viable way to feed a family. Sweet potatoes were popular in warmer coastal and southern China, while maize and potatoes became staples in the north and southwest. Peanuts, which were mainly grown for their oil, became a popular crop for marginal lands just about everywhere, since peanuts have the ability to use nitrogen from the atmosphere thanks to friendly bacteria that grow in their root nodules. Of these crops, sweet potatoes were probably the most important in southern China, where Han Shiquan, the main protagonist of our upcoming story, grew up. On unirrigated land, sweet potatoes were twice as productive as anything else. They also take much, much less work to grow. In one study from 20th century Taiwan, farmers using similar methods to those employed during the 18th century in China found that it took about one-ninth of the time to grow sweet potatoes compared to a similar amount of rice. This inevitably freed up time from cultivating more land, developing home industries, hiring oneself out for wages, or joining a bandit crew and robbing travelers. Whatever you want to do in your free time. Growing sweet potatoes allowed more traditional farmland to be used for cash crops, such as silk, tea, and sugar, which are so important to China's domestic and international markets. The introduction of crops from the Western Hemisphere wasn't the only reason, though, that the population exploded. The sheer increase in size of the empire also helped. The Qing nearly doubled its territory between the 1650s and the late 1700s, though most of the new territory was desert or steppe, or high plateau. It's not the kind of land that lends itself to supporting a high population density, even with all these new American crops. Chinese farmers also innovated. They bred strains of faster maturing rice that allowed them to plant a second or even a third crop every year depending on the climate. They developed and improved irrigation systems. Extra people meant more hands to weed and tend crops, which meant higher yields per acre. The population growth of the 18th and early 19th century, combined with the new crops that produced it, introduced a great deal of societal instability into the empire. The Qing 
saw the largest waves of internal migration in Chinese history up to that point. Migrants moved to newly conquered territories in the peripheries, but also into more mountainous regions that had long been part of China, but had never been able to support any kind of large population. Armed with the seeds and tubers from halfway around the world, these ancestors could now scratch out a living their ancestors would never have been capable of managing with rice or wheat. So while the population of China grew everywhere, it grew in hilly and marginal regions much faster. The villages, towns, and cities of the alluvial plain had established social hierarchies, dominant lineages, and families. These new communities did not, nor did the state grow to meet the needs of these new communities for the administration of justice, communal granaries, building projects, or any of the other functions the Chinese bureaucracy had traditionally served. The land that many of these settlers moved to hadn't been completely empty, but was inhabited by ethnically distinct native populations. This was especially true in the South. All of this created an atmosphere of social conflict and disorder. Most of the major rebellions that will haunt the Qing beginning in the late 18th century will take root and grow in these new frontier communities. Han Quan was a descendant of one of these pioneer families. His ancestors moved into a village in the hills north of Guangzhou sometime during the late 17th and early 18th centuries. The population growth and the growth of these new communities helped push an increasing number of people out of traditional society and into heterodox groups. Secret societies, organized crime, country bandits, river pirates, religious sects, and combinations of all of these flourished in the first half of the 19th century. These groups offered their members a sense of identity, as well as potential economic opportunity, protection from violence, and or meaningful context to live their lives. The impacts of these hillside and mountain communities had further effects outside of their immediate vicinity. Mining, timber, paper, and charcoal industries grew alongside the hill farms growing maize and sweet potatoes. But cutting down or burning hillside vegetation and cutting down trees led to soil erosion that impacted communities downstream. Sediment flooded down and silted up canals and rivers, pushing water levels up higher and higher and over their historical levees which began to overwhelm the resources and administrative capacity of the Qing bureaucracy. This led to flooding and other economic disruptions, culminating in a giant series of floods in the mid-1850s that moved the mouth of the Yellow River hundreds of kilometers. That's an event we'll discuss more in a future episode. Next episode, we'll take a closer look at some of the early rebellions against the Qing to rise from these new peripheral societies, including one inspired by a group we met a few episodes back, the White Lotus. Told you they'd be coming back. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave a five-star rating and review. Ratings and reviews will help other listeners find the show. If you have any feedback for the show, questions, or comments, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at TinyInsectPod. Thanks for listening.